Welcome to the latest edition of Lifeline Theater's On the Air. I'm Alicia Duncan, Artistic Director. From Chicago's Rogers Park neighborhood, we entreat you to open your heart to Sample of Solo, a selection of original fan-favorite stories from our Filet of Solo Festival. This is the second of four podcasts. Our theme this week is Communication Trouble. We'll begin with an excerpt from a larger show to be presented at Filet of Solo this coming February. The Homeless Ghost, written and performed by Connie Shirakawa. I do not know where the knock-knock ghost lives today, now that I have important questions to ask and no way to get some answers anymore. Will there be a vaccine soon? Yes or no? When the pandemic is over, will we embrace and sing and laugh together again without masks? I have not tried knocking for a very long time now. So tell me, is our signal still one knock for yes and two knocks for no? Really, it is all my fault for abandoning the knock-knock ghost decades ago in the north wall of our family boarding house on the west side of Chicago. Back then, I thought that I was the only one who knew there was a ghost living in the wall of the upstairs apartment in the back by the alley. It was my secret, and back then... My childhood questions were really wishes. Does Michael like me? Will we get married when we grow up? Oh. Will I get into the good school? Will I pass the test? So, I was shocked one day when my mom told me about the ghost in the Arkansas concentration camp that knocked once for yes and twice for no. All of those poor Japanese Americans must have been plenty scared having to leave their California homes and farmlands and businesses carrying only one suitcase and boarding hot train cars with the shades pulled down, going to remote deserts and swamplands guarded by soldiers carrying guns. Who knew where they were being sent or what they would do to you once you got there? All of these jittery folks in the camp were sorely in need of a spirit protector who would answer their questions in the long night and give them some assurance that everything would be all right. So, on nights when the barrack walls started closing in on them, they pulled a rickety plywood table under a bare light bulb, touched hands, and asked the camp ghost what the hell was going to happen to them next. Will that mean guard come back again tonight? And my mother said the heavy table would rise a little, sway back and forth, tilt to one side, banging the table leg on the wood floor, once for yes and twice for no. They called on this ghost for years because it was their spirit protector 
who never let them down and almost always told the truth. That was when I realized that the knock-knock ghosts had come with mom from the camps to the boarding house where I was born and grew up in Chicago. If I knocked on the wall next to my bed, it would tell me what I needed to find out. When the city tore down the whole neighborhood under something called eminent domain, my family lost their home for a second time. I believe that the knock-knock ghosts refused to move out because there was trouble in bringing down that wall. Even after days of demolition with a heavy wrecking ball, the solid brick wall would not budge. I even saw it on the 10 o'clock news one night. The wall that will not fall. It was two feet thick of solid brick and built to last for hundreds of years, I guess. Somehow, they blasted that wall down. And I never heard from that ghost again. Mom never told me anymore, except for that one time. But maybe... The ghost is still around someplace close by and is tired of roaming around and being homeless. And I could really use some answers right now. Next is an immigration story written and performed by Lihia Sandoval. It was my senior year of high school when I decided I wanted to move to the United States to study theater. My grandparents said I was too smart for art school. My dad thought theater was just a hobby. And my mom was worried I would get lost in drugs, sex, and alcohol. So we made a deal. I would try out a non-artistic major in Guatemala for one year. And if I still wanted to study theater afterwards, they would support me. I decided to try political science. I was enjoying the classwork and was excited to learn about how I could help reform my country. But the more I learned about Guatemala's unstable history and the more corrupt politicians I met, the more infuriated I became with the government. I needed to get away. So I moved to Chicago in August 2012. I completed a double major in arts management and musical theater at Columbia College. As a student on an F-1 visa, I was granted a temporary work permit that allows international students to work for one year after graduation. I was fortunate to get a job with Albany Park Theatre Project and be selected for a paid fellowship at Steppenwolf Theatre Company. I also participated in eight shows and was involved with 12 different organizations as a freelance actor, dancer, stage combatant, choreographer, assistant director, and producer. In December 2016, halfway through my fellowship at Steppenwolf, I sat down with two of my supervisors for an evaluation. They asked me what I was planning to do after the fellowship ended. I don't know. I will probably have to go back to Guatemala. They were shocked. They hadn't realized how temporary my temporary work permit was and didn't fully know how complicated it is to get a work visa. I explained that I had to have a job offer in my field of study from a reputable institution, that immigration, application, and attorney fees were around $5,000, that the process could take months or years, and that there was no guarantee whatsoever that I would get the visa. 
So I was surprised when they offered me a full-time job and decided to help me get a work visa. I met up with an immigration attorney at the beginning of January 2017. She felt confident I could obtain an O-1B visa granted to individuals with extraordinary abilities in the arts, film, and TV industries. These extraordinary abilities are proven through letters of recommendation, a job offer from a distinguished organization, evidence of participation in acclaimed productions, and awards. It took five months to gather all the information that summed up to 216 pages submitted to the Citizenship and Immigration Services Office on June 16. At the same time, I was trying to figure out how to come up with the $5,000. My best friend suggested I started a fundraiser. No, I feel weird asking people for money. So she started the fundraiser herself. She shared it on social media and it quickly started spreading. People I had never met were donating. My best friend's relatives, my boyfriend's family and friends, co-workers and their friends, people in the theater community, people in Guatemala, and more. We raised $3,745 in two months. My now accepting of my artistic career parents and grandparents contributed the rest. On August 1st, I received a request for additional evidence. This was not an approval, but not a denial either. The agent reviewing my case concluded there was not enough proof of my extraordinary abilities and that the job was not artistic enough, important for the industry, or well-paid. It was obvious they didn't understand how Chicago theater works. They didn't understand that Steppenwolf was investing in me, hoping to grow me within the company. This was not a common opportunity given to theater artists in their 20s, and no one working in nonprofit theater makes lots of money. They also misinterpreted a lot of the information. For example, they thought most of my freelance work was through internships and not as a hired professional. And for some reason, they identified my field of expertise as multiculturalism instead of theater. I couldn't tell if the immigration agent was malicious or incompetent or both. So I spent the next three months gathering additional evidence and preparing a response to clarify their mistakes a total of 158 pages. On December 7, almost a year later, my visa was denied. The agent reviewing my case concluded there was not enough proof of my extraordinary abilities and that the job was not artistic enough, important for the industry, or well paid. How can 374 pages of evidence not be enough? How can a job offer from one of the top theater companies in Chicago and the nation not be enough? How can 21 letters from people like the president of Columbia College, the artistic director of Albany Park Theater Project, the managing director and artistic director of Lifeline Theater, the executive director of the Steppenwolf Theater, a Chicago reader critic, the creative director of the Alliance of Latinx Theater Artists and others not be enough? These people are respected leaders in the arts. These are people in positions of power deciding who gets a job, what gets produced, and how theater gets done. These people believed I was worth their time and that I had more to offer. The denial letter was filled with phrases like, this denial leaves the beneficiary, me, without lawful immigration status. 
The beneficiary is now present in the United States in violation of the law. This notice of decision leaves the beneficiary without lawful immigration status. The beneficiary is hereafter present in the United States in violation of the law and is required to depart the United States immediately. I felt like a criminal. The sudden change in my life was decided by a stranger in an office in California. Some people told me, this has nothing to do with your talents. It's due to an unfair immigration system. Does this mean I was doomed from the start? Others told me, you could just stay illegally. It's not like they're gonna come looking for you. Even if the system is flawed, subjective and ambiguous, I want to do things right. So I packed five and a half years of my life in one week and returned to Guatemala on December 19. This is not only my story, but the story of thousands of recent graduates and professionals from all over the world. We were not looking for charity. We wanted to work, innovate, and contribute to American society. The U.S. actively recruits international students, perhaps just for our tuition, but what is the point of educating all of these people to throw them out afterwards? I sent thank you emails to over 120 people who supported my visa application by writing letters of recommendation, donating money, serving as consultants, or offering advice. Most replied asking me, what are your plans? What are you going to do now? When I first told this story, I did not have answers to those questions, but I looked forward to reuniting with my family and recharging for my next crusade. Now, three years later, I look back to my life in Chicago with nostalgia. There are certainly parts of it that I still miss and hope to regain in the future. But what a crusade have these three years been. I started three businesses, participated in six theater productions and three films, started teaching, traveled, began a master's degree, reconnected with my family, and met so many people that have influenced me as an artist and human. Not everything has been rainbows and butterflies, but I am very fortunate and grateful. When my application was rejected, I had my family waiting with open arms, who was able to support me until I found solid ground again. Unfortunately, there are many others with similar experiences who don't have a place to return to or people they can rely on. They are just kicked out of the US with nowhere to go. I look forward to the day in which humans can settle or wander wherever and with whomever they desire, regardless of identity, governmental systems, or geopolitical boundaries. Our final story is Harmonizing with My Dad, written and performed by Andrew Stamm. My dad and I have what you might call a somewhat estranged relationship. He's a very down-to-business, cut-the-shit kind of guy who's obsessed with the harshness of reality. And he reminds me of it every day. In fact, just looking through some of the text messages he sends me, you can kind of get an idea of his character. On January 1, he texted me, pay rent. A few days later, he texted me, I put some money in your bank account, Andrew. Use this for a CTA pass, not cigarettes. And another one. Remember, Andrew, a Facebook page can either help you get a job or keep you from getting one. You might want to rethink that picture you just posted. 
And now I have to share with you one he sent me recently. I was telling him all about my New Year's resolution with my roommate to do P90X every day, which hasn't been going so well. And he responded, Andrew, getting a job and keeping it will make P90X look like a walk in the park. Remember, reality rules and God rules reality. He texts nothing like my mom, who sends me messages like, good morning, Andrew. Love you. How's the weather in Chicago? Love you. Did you see that cute flower arrangement I posted on Instagram? Love you. Keep in mind, love is always spelled L-U-V, and you is just a you. But my dad had never texts love you. I think it's just implied, and I'm okay with that. A lot of our relationship is implied. We don't have a lot in common, and looking back, there are a few moments that remind me of what we do have, and they all center around religion. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's funny or sad. It just, well, it just is. A lot of the time I spent with my dad was in the church pew. Now, I don't know about you, but at the Bethel Christian Reformed Church, there's an unspoken rule about the order a family should sit in the pew. The daughters always sit on the inside, closest to the middle. Then you have the mom, and then the dad, and then the sons sit on the end, leaning on the armrest. Don't ask me why, I don't understand it, but that's the way it always was. All of my friends' family sat like this, and the Stam family, now we always follow suit. So I spent a lot of time next to my dad, and there were never enough Psalter hymnals in the pews, so we always had to share a book when we would sing. Now I love singing. I was in choir all through grade school and high school, so I would always try to harmonize with the hymn, probably completely ignoring the actual tenor line in the hymnal, but I had a good ear, and it always sounded nice with the melody. And my dad was a good singer, too. Timid and maybe unsure, but good. And every now and then we would sit in front of this guy who would always sing the baritone part with intense vibrato, and my dad would hear it and join along with him. I think he would get confused by what to sing, but it sounded nice overall. He would be all like, it is well. And I would come in all like, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And we were harmonizing and that was nice. I always looked forward to singing on Sundays because of that. Now, going back even further, I remember every night before bed, my dad would come into my room and we would pray together. We came up with what I like to call the super prayer. It was too long and super for me to remember, so I drew up this little cheat sheet and taped it to my bedboard. And then mid-prayer, I'd glance at my little drawings and remember all of the important topics to cover with Jesus. It went like this. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this day. Thank you for my family. Please be with all the poor people and give them what they need. Thank you that cousin Laura had her baby Jackson and thank you that he could come out all healthy and safe. And then it got serious. Dear Jesus, please give me wisdom, humility, my eyes to be open, my ears to hear, and a nice clean heart. This of course was the part my dad wrote and it was really hard to remember. I think I drew a brain for wisdom, eyes and ears, and a heart with a halo around it. It was very literal. But I couldn't think of a picture for humility. I mean, what does humility look like to a fourth grader? So I drew a capital H and called it good. 
And then the prayer would go on and on and get even more deep and self-reflective for a nine-year-old. And then would end on something like this. Thank you for mom. Thank you for dad. Thank you for Emily and Liz, even though we fight a lot. And thank you for my WoW 1999 CD and my Star Wars The Phantom Menace VHS. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. I recited this same prayer every night for like three years. For three years, I thanked God that Cousin Laura's labor was successful. But after three years, I wasn't really talking to God so much as reciting from memory. But it didn't matter. My dad was sitting right next to me, holding my hand and waiting for me to finish. Now... When I was 15, I came out of the closet. And that's when things really started to fall apart between us. We never had anything to talk about. And when we did, it always ended in physical fights and arguments that really tore my family apart. Around then, all of the high schoolers at church were planning on making something called profession of faith together in front of the congregation. Now, I was too, but I later found out that I wasn't allowed to because I was gay. And in the Christian Reformed tradition, You can only take part in the communion sacrament if you have made profession of faith. After a few months, my family switched churches. But then my senior year, I was kicked out of my private school for being in a homosexual relationship. So now I was stuck every day at home with a father I didn't know how to communicate with. But now we went to the third Reformed Church of Pella. And if you ask any Christian Reformed or Reformed believer, they will tell you there is a definite difference between the two denominations. I really couldn't tell you. All I remember thinking that is besides the church change, communion was a rite of passage, and I wasn't invited. At our new church, there were no more hymns, and worship became more of a rock concert. All of the lyrics for the contemporary music were posted on three enormous screens above the sanctuary. So there were no more Psalter hymnals to share with my dad. And he didn't know any of the new songs, and from what I could gather, didn't really appreciate them, so he never sang along. There was no more harmonizing with him. Then one service, my senior year, the year from hell, the communion plate was once again being passed around the congregation. My dad passed it to me, and I passed it on without taking any bread. And as the pastor was reciting his little speech, this is my body. Broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. My dad turned to me and grabbed my hand. And as he pulled away, I noticed he left a little piece of bread. He didn't say anything. He just turned back to face the pastor and continued on with the sacrament. After communion, the whole congregation stood up for the closing song. The lyrics came on the screen. I wasn't paying attention. I was lost somewhere in my head. But then I hear my dad singing. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, produced by Lifeline Theater and Sound Concept Media. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to hear about future projects. You can support our podcast at patreon.com slash lifeline theater.